Well, in preparation for our time around the table, please turn in your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. <clears throat> this evening, as we come to the table of the Lord, it is also an extension of the series of sermons that I've been preaching and the particular part of that series of sermons on the doctrines of grace, why the doctrines of grace matter. And this evening we're going to consider the doctrines of grace and assurance. We could say it's the doctrines of grace and how they affect trials and suffering and persecution, or the security of the believer, or the protection of the believer, the comfort of the believer in the midst of such trials and the fallen world that we live in. In every circumstance, God keeping us and protecting us so that we cannot be separated from the love of God in Christ. But we'll see in this text that there's a connection between these doctrines of sovereign grace that God has chosen. He has elected to save sinners by His grace, and He keeps them until the very end. Our faith will not fail because our salvation is the work of God from start to finish. And so we see that in Romans chapter 8. I'll be reading beginning in verse 28 through the end of the chapter. <clears throat> the Apostle Paul writes, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, <clears throat> who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of God or the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. <clears throat> Consider these three headings from these verses. Verse 28, we see a comforting providence. In verses 29 and 30, we see a secure salvation. And in verses 31 through the end of the chapter, we see an impossible separation. So a comforting providence, a secure salvation, and an impossible separation. 
First consider with me the comforting providence that we see in verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. To whom? To those who love God. To those who are called according to His purpose. This is a comforting thought. Because we know in the providence of God, He is working all things together for the spiritual good of His children. Those who have been called. Those who have been effectually called. Remember the doctrine of irresistible grace or effectual calling? That particular point that we looked at, here we see a practical implication of that. God doesn't call you out of darkness into light. He doesn't give you new life in Christ, grant you faith in the Lord Jesus Christ in order to somehow not seek your good beyond that point. No, he then is at work providentially working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Now, we have to be careful not to just quote part of this verse. Often we hear people say, well, all things work together for good. Pagan religions at the time that Paul wrote this had sayings similar to this one in Romans 8.28. And the Roman believers would have been familiar with this. We live in a day in which we hear people say similar things. It all work out. Things always seem to work out, so be happy. Don't worry. People talk about, according to their religion, or maybe they haven't thought much about it, they just say, oh, there's some good karma here. And so people generally will talk about things and say, oh, it's going to work out. Things are going to work out for good. And so even Christians at times can be careless if, and, and just quote part of the verse and not understand the whole of what is being said here. But these types of sayings from unbelievers, those who aren't Christians, it's just going to work out really give a false hope and should bring no comfort. The difference between similar beliefs and statements by unbelievers, and this one in Romans 8.28 is this. Unbelievers think that things will just work out simply because they do in and of themselves. But Romans 8.28 says that God is at work. God is sovereign. God is the one who is causing things to work out in a particular way for the good of a particular people. This is only possible because of the sovereignty of God. And the promise is only for his children. Those who love him, those who have trusted in the person and work of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin. Romans 8.28 is not a false hope based on nothing more than the belief in so-called fate or luck. No, it's based on the promise of God who has the power to bring this about. And the Apostle Paul says, we know this. We know something. We, believers, we know this. And it's for whom? This comforting providence is for whom? Well, it's for the believer. Identified in this verse as those who love God and those who are called according to His purpose. This is not an indiscriminate promise that everyone should take for themselves. It is a discriminate promise. It is made to those who love him, who are the called according to his purpose. And so if you're here today and you hear these words, but you're not in Christ, you've not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you're to find no comfort in these verses. They're not true of you. This is true for those 
who are believers, here identified as those who love God. That actually stands emphatically at the front of the verse in the Greek language. It says, we know that to those who love God, He works all things together for good. Those who love God is really synonymous with the Christian. Christians are identified in various ways in the Bible. One of the ways we could identify ourselves is we are those who love God. Romans 5 verse 5 says, The love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And so our love for God is not something we have produced, but it is given by God, namely God, the Holy Spirit, who has been poured out within our hearts, or this love of God has been poured out within our hearts. And so when you read Scripture, as you're reading in your own time in the Word, notice various places that we are identified, not just believers or saints and all those rich words that tell us something about who we are in Christ, but notice how it also identifies us as those who love God. James 1 verse 12, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to whom? To those who love him. Being called those who love God reminds us of the unmerited, undeserving love of God for us. We love because he first loved us. The promise is for those who love God. It's also for those who are called according to his purpose. So this is another way of identifying Believers, we are those who are called. And so again, we tie this back to what I've been preaching on in the doctrines of sovereign grace, the doctrine of effectual calling. We are the called, the called of God. Those who are the called of Jesus Christ, he says in Romans 1 verse 6. Those who were called into fellowship with his son, 1 Corinthians 1 verse 9. 1 Peter 5 verse 10, he called you to his eternal glory in Christ. This is the effectual call of God, out of darkness into light. This is that inward call. There's the general call, the gospel, that goes out to all. But then we don't see this inward call of God calling the sinner out of darkness into light. But as we've talked about, we see the fruit of it, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here, the promise is to those who are called effectually out of darkness into light, those who have been called unto salvation, made alive in Christ. And we are the called according to his purpose. So again, all this points to the sovereignty of God in salvation. His purpose here is, is his eternal purpose in Ephesians 3 verse 11. His purpose by which he works all things according to the counsel of his will. And so the promise is to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And he says, we know something as those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. We know that God causes all things to work together for good in our lives. We know it biblically, it's taught in the scriptures. We know it savingly, we might say, because we've seen the goodness of God in salvation. We know it experientially Because as those who have walked with him, we have seen, even in our our finite estimation of things that take place, we see the hand of God and the goodness of God. Even like Job, excuse me, like 
Joseph in Genesis 50 verse 20 when he said to his brothers, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And God used it for good, not only in Joseph's life, but in the life of many others. God is sovereign in all those things. Now, what is the good that is so comforting here? It's God causes all all things to work together for good, not evil. What's comforting is he's working it together for good. Well, we don't always define good as God does. Sometimes we think what we know is best for us. When in fact we couldn't be any more wrong in our judgment. What we think may be for our good actually might not be because we don't have all knowledge and we certainly don't have all wisdom as God does. Someone might say, well, why won't God give me a a husband or a wife right now, a spouse right now. Trust the sovereignty and the wisdom of God. Why won't God give me health right now? We trust the sovereignty and wisdom of God, that God is working all things together for the good of the believer. We see this in the life of Paul. He knew it experientially as well. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, He speaks of how he had this thorn in the flesh to humble him. And he prayed. He prayed and implored, he says, three times that it might leave him, that this thorn in the flesh would be removed. And here was the answer that God gave. My grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected in weakness. And Paul took that from the hand of a good God. What he thought would be good is that this thorn in the flesh would be removed. And he implored, he begged God to do that. And God said, no. Instead, I am working this thorn in the flesh for your spiritual good. My grace is sufficient for you. My power will be perfected in your weakness. And so what was Paul's response? He humbly submitted himself to the sovereign hand of God, trusting the goodness of his heavenly Father. He says, most gladly, therefore... I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. We don't tend to think that thorns in the flesh are good. But God in his goodness and wisdom grants them that we might be sanctified, that we might love him more. I'm sure you can remember times when you believed something was good for you. You prayed for it. You desired it. But God said no. And instead, he gave you something infinitely more good. So what is the ultimate good that God is working out in the life of the believer? Well, as we talked about this morning, it's our sanctification. Our sanctification. That we would be conformed more and more to the image of Christ. And all for his glory. So that the good he is working out is our sanctification and his glory. And the two are not opposed. And it says here that he causes all things to work together for that purpose. For that good purpose, our sanctification, his glory. All things, even affliction. As the psalmist wrote, it, was, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Psalm 119 verse 71. Even temptation can be used by God for our good. It drives us to the throne of grace to draw near to God and plead for mercy in time of need. 
You know, even God can cause sin to work out for our good. He uses the sin of others for our sanctification. And he can even use our own sin to humble us that we might depend on him more. Now, I say this knowing that that can be distorted by some. So don't abuse Romans 8.28. It's not saying that, and I'm not saying that sinning is good. Some have twisted to say, well, I'm glad I sinned. I see how God used it for good. No, just because God can work even sin for the good of the believer, that's drastically different from saying that sin is good. Thomas Watson wrote this, if any of God's people should be tampering with sin because God can turn it to good, though the Lord does not damn them, he will send them to hell in this life. He may put them into such bitter agonies and soul convulsions as may fill them full of horror horror, and make them draw nigh to despair. Let this be a flaming sword to keep them from coming near the forbidden tree. In other words, don't twist what is being said here and say, well, I'll sin so that God can work it out for some good. No, flee from sin. But God is sovereign over even sin. He is sovereign over the devil. He is sovereign over evil and wickedness and sin. And so God can and does work it out for the good of the believer and for his own glory. And here it says he works it together. It's in concert and cooperation. This speaks of his divine providence. God causes all things to work together for good for every single believer, for the whole of God's people, and for his own glory, all at the same time, God, such wisdom and such divine providence that he can work all things together for the good of every single believer at the same time. What a good and a gracious God. This is a comforting providence. And this gives us hope. Again, Thomas Watson said, to know that nothing hurts the godly is a matter of comfort. But to be assured that all things which fall out shall cooperate for their good, that their crosses shall be turned into blessing, that showers of affliction water the withering root of their grace and make it flourish more, this may fill their hearts with joy till they run over. This is a very comforting providence. And it is for those who are called according to his purpose. Those who are the elect of God. And so therefore we see the connection through the the doctrines of sovereign grace. Now, nothing demonstrates how God works all things together for good more than our salvation. So verses 29 and 30 speak of that salvation and it speaks of the salvation that we have from start to finish. From God foreknowing us, choosing to save us before the foundation of the world until glorification. And so we see in verses 29 and 30, this secure salvation. He says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. These whom he called, he also justified. These whom he justified, he also glorified. And so here we see that this salvation is secure. 
Look at the five words, foreknew, predestined, called, justified, glorified. Many have called this the golden chain of redemption. Five links in a chain that cannot be broken. One link cannot exist without the other. And all are necessary for salvation to be complete. God is the subject of each of these verbs, and believers are the objects. And there's a progression here. It begins with the work of God in salvation in the past and ends with the future aspect of our salvation, glorification. And yet notice that each link is spoken of as if it's already accomplished. Even glorification is in the past tense because of the surety of it. All this reveals that God's eternal purpose in salvation is sure and certain that God is sovereign in salvation and therefore we have a secure salvation. Look at the so-called links in the chain. First, we have foreknew. That word means to select or choose in advance, to appoint beforehand, and this is the doctrine of unconditional election. And then it is predestined. We, we saw that in Ephesians chapter 1. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself. We were foreknown. That's before the foundation of the world. God chose us before the foundation of the world by His grace. It is an unconditional election. He predestined us and He called us. Then remember, in the doctrines of grace, in time, He calls us out of darkness into light. We are the called according to his purpose. Remember in Romans 8, 28. And so this is the effectual call of God, this divine summons issued by God to elect sinners, which brings them to faith in Christ, also known as irresistible grace. It's efficacious, cannot be rejected. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. We are the called. And that brings about the gifts of faith and repentance. Those whom He foreknew, He predestined. Those whom He predestined, He called. Those whom He called, He justified. I won't redefine that from this morning, but that legal act of God, whereby we are declared righteous. The righteousness of Christ imputed to us, our sins imputed to Him on the cross. And then that fifth word, glorified, that final act of redemption in which we are resurrected We have new resurrected bodies, no more capacity to sin. This unbreakable chain of salvation guarantees the believer's security. It is the work of God. And so we see here again the assurance the believer has because of the sovereignty of God in salvation. Working these things out for our good and for His glory. But then we see in verses 31 to 39... An impossible separation. And I get that from verse 39. It says that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing will be able to separate us. It's impossible for the believer who has been foreknown, predestined, called, justified, and will be, but is so sure that it's spoken of in past tense, glorified. It's impossible for that one that God is sovereignly, providentially working all things together for his good to finally be lost, to be separated from his love, which is in Christ Jesus. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ. It is impossible for anyone or anything 
to separate us from the love of God in Christ because it is the sovereign work of God, our salvation from start to finish. I love the flow of thought. It's such a a beautiful set of verses in verses 31 to 39. Nothing is able to separate us from what? The love of God in Christ. Why? God is for us in verse 31. And this is demonstrated in Christ's saving death on our behalf in verse 32. It's demonstrated in our justification in verse 33. It's demonstrated in Christ's death and resurrection and his ongoing intercession for us in verse 34. And therefore, nothing or no one can successfully be against us in verse 31. No one can successfully bring a charge against us in verse 33. No one can reverse God's forgiving love in Christ and bring condemnation back in verse 34. There are people and things that would threaten us and try to separate us from God's love in Christ, but every attempt and every threat fails. Why? Because nothing can thwart, impede, obstruct, stop, or terminate God's love for us in Christ. And this magnifies the love of God and the work of Christ on the cross. Verses 31 to 34 have a judicial emphasis. It's like a courtroom, someone bringing a charge against God's elect. And it doesn't stand. And verses 35 to 39 has a relational emphasis. It focuses on God's unending love for us. And love is mentioned in verse 37 and verse 39. And so look at the flow of thought of this. Verse 31. What then shall, shall we say to these things? What things? Well, probably what he said from chapter 5, verse 1, through chapter 8, verse 30. What can we say? Paul, there's a sense of awe and wonder and amazement. We should find ourselves when we consider his love for us in Christ amazed. What shall we say to these things? And Paul answers that question, what shall we say to these things, with a a rhetorical question. A rhetorical question is a question asked merely for effect with no answer expected. The answer may be obvious or immediately provided by the questioner. And so when he says, what shall we say to these things? He gives this rhetorical question. If God is for us, who is against us? And the understood answer is no one. God is for us. Is this not seen in our salvation? Believer, God is for you. He is working for you. Why is God for us? Because he has sovereignly and graciously chosen to be for you. Not because of anything good in you. See, this is all tied to the doctrines of grace. It's a secure salvation. And it's impossible to be separated from the love of God in Christ. Because God has sovereignly chosen to be for you. It's not because you're for him. It's because he has chosen to be for you. And so the question is, who is against us? Now, it's not as though there are not enemies of the believer and the believer's soul. There are numerous enemies. There are those who will bring a charge against us. There are those who may condemn us. The point is that none of the enemies of believers are successful. For God stands in defense of those 
who are the recipients of his grace. And so the question, who is against us, doesn't mean that no person on earth will ever oppose you. Paul knew this personally. He was opposed on every side. The comfort is that no one will ever be successfully against you. The comfort is that their opposition doesn't change God's work of salvation. It doesn't change God's love for you in Christ. It doesn't change God's choice of you before the foundation of the world. It doesn't cause you to lose your salvation. Someone may be against you and cause you to lose your job. Someone may be against you and cause you to lose your reputation or your possessions and even your life. But your enemies can never change that God is for you in Christ. It certainly doesn't mean that there will never be any demonic opposition against you. For Satan is the accuser of the brethren. We see that in the Old Testament in Job. The devil himself opposed Job. Peter was opposed by Satan. Satan asked permission to sift Peter like wheat. Satan was opposed even to Jesus. So it doesn't mean there won't be any demonic opposition against you. And it doesn't mean that God will necessarily vindicate you in this life when there is opposition. It may not be until the day of judgment. But it does mean, by that question, who is against us, it does mean that God's purpose and salvation cannot be successfully opposed. A believer cannot have a successful enemy when it comes to our salvation. The God of the universe, omnipotent, the ruler over all, is for you. Reminds me of Psalm 56, verse 4. In God, whose word I praise, in God I put my trust, I shall not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? It's a mere man as opposed to God. What can man do to me? We sing the hymn, Children of the Heavenly Father, and it says, Praise the Lord in joyful numbers. Your protector never slumbers. At the will of your defender, every foeman must surrender. Or like a river glorious, we sing, Hidden in the hollow of his blessed hand, Never foe can follow, never traitor stand. Therefore, not a surge of worry. Not a shade of care, not a blast of hurry touched the spirit there. Stayed upon Jehovah, hearts are fully blessed. Finding, as he promised, perfect peace and rest. He holds you in his hand and no traitor can stand there. God is omnipotent and you're hidden in the hollow of his blessed hand. So God isn't going to lose you. That's impossible. Why? God is for you. Verse 32, he says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? How do we know that God is for us? Because he did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. This is a demonstration that God is for us. Stated negatively, God didn't spare his son from death for us. He did not save him from the awful humiliation of the cross. He did not spare him from the imputation of our sin to his account on the cross. But stated positively, we could say it this way, God the Father delivered him over for us all. 
He caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Then the question arises, how then will he not also with him freely give us all things? If God gave his son for us, would he withhold any good thing from us? And the answer is obvious. It doesn't even need to be answered. He does freely give us all the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. It's with him. It's our union with Christ. And he gives us all things, all that our good and sovereign God deems to be needed for His glory and our spiritual good. He gives it freely. All things here might be a reference to one day, as Scripture says, we will inherit the earth, the world, the new heavens, the new earth. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. And then he says in verses 33 and 34, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who's the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. I mean, the Apostle Paul is just piling on, we might say, all these truths about the believer standing before God and what Christ has done. And in light of that, who will bring a charge against those God has forgiven in Christ? Who's the one who would condemn the one that God has forgiven through the work of Christ? Again, these are legal, judicial terms. Will any charge be brought that will stick, so to speak? Again, Satan may bring a charge. Others could bring a charge. And others might condemn us. But he answers the question of who will bring a charge against God's elect in this way. God is the one who justifies. Any charge brought against God's elect will be met with the declaration that God has justified us in Christ. God has declared us as guiltless. The charge brought is dismissed. This was the verdict rendered when we believed on Christ. God declared us not guilty, but completely righteous, for Christ bore our sin. The point is that the verdict of justified is irrevocable. And there's no new information to reopen the case. God knows all our sin. And those sins have been laid on Christ. And He has died for all your sin. So Christ Jesus, He says, is the one who died. But then He says, Rather, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So who condemns? No one can bring a condemnation before us that isn't already taken care of by Christ in His death, His resurrection, who now intercedes for us as our advocate. And so there's the courtroom scene. And someone stands to condemn God's elect. And Jesus stands as our advocate and pleads His righteousness and His blood. And all charges are dismissed. Condemnation has been removed And so then Paul says in verse 35, who will separate us then from the love of God or the love of Christ? Who or what can do this? Can anything or anyone separate those who have been justified by the work of Christ, the recipients of God's love? Can anything separate us? And he asks, will tribulation, probably a reference 
to outward trials? Will distress separate us from the love of Christ? That is inward trouble, distress in our souls and hearts due to unfavorable circumstances. Will persecution, that is affliction for Christ's name, could that somehow sever us from Christ and the love of God in Christ? Will famine, hunger, a lack of basic necessities, in the context, probably speaking of famine, which results from persecution, will nakedness separate us from the love of Christ, a reference to poverty and destitution? What about peril, external dangers, or the sword, the idea of someone were to take your life, would that separate us from the love of Christ? And here Paul is talking about things that he experienced. Persecution, distress, tribulation, famine, nakedness, and facing death itself for the sake of Christ. And so he says in verse 36, just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. He's there making reference to Psalm 44, verse 22. Persecution God's people, God's people face is not theoretical. It has throughout history been very real. It may be in our day as well as things are changing. But Paul understood that that couldn't separate him from the love of Christ. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul speaks of what he experienced for the sake of Christ. Imprisonments, beaten with times without number, often in danger of death. He says, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. So Paul's not writing from theory. With all of that, could that separate us from the love of Christ? And the answer is no. Instead, he states it this way in verse 37, but in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Overwhelmingly conquer. It's actually one word in the Greek that begins with huper, or we translate it hyper. If we were to translate it somewhat literally, but not the way we speak, we're hyper conquerors. We're super conquerors. We're, we overwhelmingly conquer. It's not as though we, we get by by the skin of our teeth. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. And so it leads them to a very firm conviction. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers. I mean, Paul begins to list these things and he uses them as kind of couplets. Neither life nor death, neither angels nor principalities, nor things present nor things to come, neither powers, which may refer to earthly rulers or demonic powers, he says, neither, in verse 39, height nor depth. He's just, he's just saying there's nothing, height or depth. 
And then he says it like this, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Nor any other created thing. And since all things have been created, except for God himself, who is eternal, then nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ. This is security indeed. This is what Christ has accomplished for us. For whom? Verse 33, the elect. You see how this is tied to the doctrines of grace? If you don't understand what the elect means, the unconditional election, then you won't understand this security. Those who don't believe in the doctrines of grace, who are so-called, historically called Arminians, that believe again that faith is the work of man, originates from man ultimately, then that faith can fail. But we understand that salvation is the work of God from start to finish, the sovereign work of God. Then nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. And so these verses are addressed again to believers. Us, verse 31, us all, those who are in Christ, The elect, verse 33. Us for whom Christ intercedes in verse 34. Verse 35, those on whom Christ has set his love. Those who are loved by him in verse 37. Those for whom God sent his love or sent his son to die for and set his love upon in verse 39. This love which God has for us who are in Christ Jesus. This love is a particular love, a saving love, an electing love. And therefore, we are secure. And so here we see this comforting providence based on the sovereignty of God, this secure salvation that's based on a sovereign God in salvation that leads to an impossibility. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Praise be to God. So as we come to the table of the Lord tonight, this is what we rejoice in. This is what we celebrate. This is what we remember. The believer indeed has comfort and assurance, protection in any and every circumstance because salvation is the work of God. Let's bow our heads together in prayer. Fathers, we come to the table of the Lord tonight. We pray that we would remember the great mercy and grace that we've been shown in Christ, the great love with which you have loved us, a love from which we cannot be separated because we didn't earn it, we didn't deserve it, we're not responsible for it. It is a sovereign love that you have chosen to show to undeserving sinners. Lord, I pray that this would stir us up to love you, Lord, to pursue holiness, to to seek your glory in our lives in every way. Lord, that we would be those who live in light of your unmerited and undeserved love for us in Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.